Welcome to See Generally, the University of Pennsylvania Law Review's podcast. My name is Kristen Marino, and I'm the media editor for Volume 171. Today, we welcome Professor Dorothy Lund to the podcast. Professor Lund is an associate professor of law at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. Professor Lund studies and teaches corporate law, corporate governance, securities regulation, contracts, and mergers and acquisitions. She's a co-author of the casebook, Corporations and Other Business Associations, and her papers have appeared or are forthcoming in journals such as Columbia Law Review, Stanford Law Review, University of Chicago Law Review, and Yale Law Journal Forum. Professor Lund has been a visiting assistant professor at the University of Chicago Law School, Columbia Law School, and the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. She also served as a Bigelow Fellow and lecturer in law at the University of Chicago. Before entering academia, Professor Lund practiced corporate law at Sullivan and Cromwell. She also served as a clerk for Judge Leo E. Stein Jr. on the Delaware Supreme Court and for Judge Joel M. Flom on the Seventh Circuit. She earned her BA from Pomona College and her JD from Harvard Law School. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Lund. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. So before we get into your recent scholarship, we'd love to hear a little bit about why you decided to pursue a career in academia and study corporate law? Well, this is a great question and something that I always tell my students when they start law school is to be open-minded because when I started as a law student, I come from a background in nonprofit work. I had vague feelings about wanting to have a career in international law without really knowing what that was. And then for one of my first classes that I took, my 1L year, I actually took associations and loved it. And it just completely transformed my path. I took a few other business law classes. And sometimes you find yourself surprised by the fields that interest you the most. But this was very much the one that grabbed my attention and my interest. And so I went on to practice corporate law, clerked for Leo Stride in a prominent business law court. And then, you know, had a lucky turn when I did the Bigelow Fellowship at the University of Chicago, which gave me the time and space to pursue some writing projects in corporate law and really got me on the path to the career. So again, stay open-minded. You may be surprised what you find yourself (laughs) loving in law school. Thank you. So you're publishing your latest article with the Penn Law Review, Asset Managers as Regulators. And I'd love to talk to you about that. So can you tell us initially what sparked your interest in pursuing that topic? Yeah. So this project for me in some ways started a long time ago with early work, a paper called The Case Against Passive Shareholder Voting, where I was studying the rise of index investing. So when you are an investor, investors often choose mutual funds. Today, the particular type of mutual fund and index fund has become extremely popular. And that's because index funds you know, they, in contrast, actively manage mutual funds that say, oh, I'm going to beat the market. And index funds tells you, I'm just going to track this baseline index as closely as possible. As a result, you don't have to pay for research. You don't have to pay for trading costs. It's a lot cheaper for you. And so there's now a lot of evidence showing that investors do very well investing in index funds. This has made a lot of investors decide to invest in index funds, a lot of money is flowing into the asset managers that manage these index investments. And it's made these asset managers extremely powerful because when I go and invest with BlackRock, if I take some of my hard-earned savings and invest in an index fund, 
they get to control the governance rights associated with that investment. I don't get to go vote at the Apple annual meeting, BlackRock does. And so I was concerned in this early paper about what are the incentives of index funds, these asset managers in corporate governance? Are they going to be good stewards? Is BlackRock going to manage my investment well in terms of using my governance rights in a way that makes a positive difference? And I theorized that their incentives really weren't very good to engage in stewardship over these portfolio companies. Several other projects developed this claim. And lately, I've been thinking a lot more about what does it mean when we have all of this power and influence within these three asset managers. They're playing such a powerful role over the American economy. And that's what brought me today to this paper that I'm publishing with you. So how does a modern regulatory environment enable the asset managers to wield this much power? There's this sense that with good evidence that the modern regulatory environment is quite dysfunctional. And we think of the regulatory state has, you know, the ability to make formal rules, informal rules, they get to enforce rules. Each of these levers have come under stress in the past few decades. So I'm sure you've learned in your admin law classes about regulatory capture, regulatory ossification. I mean, if you pick up the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, you see about how we have this very partisanship that is complicating rulemaking. To quote Michael Livermore, who's an admin law expert, he says, the regulatory state isn't dead. It's just really stagnant. Things aren't really moving. And so again, I don't think this would surprise anybody. Everybody is pretty much aware of this. So as a result, I think people are looking for new places of power. You know, where can we see change happen? Who can we act on? If we can't go to the government and see problems being solved in a way that's rigorous, that's welfare enhancing, who can do this? And I think Now, all of a sudden, we have these hugely powerful asset managers that have this influence over the entire economy, and people are looking to them to solve global problems. So I think that really is the setup for this project and this paper. So can you give us an example of one of these asset managers wielding their power in this way and how they're able to influence the company's decisions? Yes. In the paper, I talk about two regulatory areas that the big three asset managers. So again, I referred to these large, powerful asset managers, and there are three of them, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. And these have been referred to as the big three. These asset managers are managing a huge percentage, I think more than 20% of the equity in the S&P 500. They've got large ownership stakes across every public company. So again, because they have those governance rights, they have a lot of power. And so the two really interesting ways that they've utilized it is to improve the diversity of corporate boards and also to respond to climate change. In the interest of time, I'll just mention the climate change and a bit of background. I think there's been growing awareness of the risk that climate change poses both to business and society. This was coupled with deregulatory policies, the rollback of environmental regulation by President Trump and his administration. So in this moment of regulatory vacuum, we see BlackRock enter in. And so in 2020, they announced a new voting policy. They say, we expect every single one of our portfolio companies, which again is basically the entire public market, we expect you all to publish disclosure about your sustainability practices. We also want to understand what risks climate change poses to your business. And we also want to understand 
how you plan to operate in a world in which we comply with the Paris Agreement and its goal of limiting global warming to less than two degrees. And by the way, this was after President Trump had left the Paris Agreement. So in a sense, BlackRock was saying, we still want to understand how you plan to comply. And then they said, we're going to enforce this by voting against directors when companies are not making enough progress here. So you can see here how this really looks like rulemaking. It's like, we've got this rule, we've got this target, this regulatory target, and we've got a means of enforcing it. We're going to vote against directors and we don't see enough progress. And this has been really influential. There's a strong negative association between big three ownership and subsequent carbon emissions. And also there's been a lot more climate disclosure since this voting policy was announced. And have the managers actually voted against directors falling through on their threat? Yes. Great question. Initially, in the years leading up to this big announcement, BlackRock and other asset managers had sort of said, oh, we understand climate change has risks. We want to see portfolio companies paying attention to it, but they didn't really follow that up. And a lot of people looked at that and said, oh, come on, they're not really putting their money where their mouth is or their votes where their mouth is. But following this 2020 letter, the voting changed a great deal. There were a lot of votes against directors. There were a lot more votes in favor of shareholder proposals on climate issues. And for this reason, a lot of shareholder proposals on climate passed that had never passed before. So I think a lot of people saw this as a real turning point where they announced the rule and then they were enforcing compliance in a meaningful way. Wow. That's interesting. So in your paper, you kind of talk about some of the potential problems with this development. Can you explain a little bit about those you've noticed? Yeah, sure. I think this regulatory dynamic is potentially problematic for a few different reasons. So one, if we step back and think about why are they regulating? What are the incentives that shape this regulation? My theory is that this is being done in response to pressure from their clients. And these clients are institutions, they're public pension funds, corporations, governments, and also individuals. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, if all of these policies are being created with the interests of these clients in mind, that indicates they're not necessarily going to further the public interest. A lot of people, nearly half of U.S. households invest in mutual funds, but this is the wealthier half of the U.S. And so to the extent they're considering the interest of, of individual investors in making these rules, it's going to be the interests of the wealthier half of the U.S. And of course, corporations want rules for their own strategic reasons. Public pension funds may be acting based on political pressure. So when we think about what's shaping these rules, it's not necessarily the case that these rules are going to advance the public interest. We can also talk about whether or not rules created by government bodies always do that. And of course, there's all sorts of issues. Right. That limit that. So I don't want to say here like that this is imperfect relative to some perfect alternative, but there are a lot of pathologies here as well. And in addition, there's very little transparency into how these rules are being made. There's no oversight by a government agency as opposed to other private regulators that have a lot of power. They're usually asked to, you know, submit their rules to the SEC or there's some government body that is providing oversight or asking for transparency in the rulemaking process. There's no electoral accountability, no elected official is involved in all in making these rules. Nobody can vote one of these asset managers out of office. And another big issue here, I think, is that 
if we think, if the public really perceives that, wow, these asset managers are handling this, they are taking care of climate change, what does that do to the public regulatory process? Does that take pressure Mm -hmm. off of our government to come up with rules that would maybe be better calibrated to address climate change? So these are some of the issues that I think we're in an early period of understanding this dynamic and what it's going to bring about. But these are some of the issues that I think are looming. So do you think there are some benefits to it? Obviously, preventing and addressing climate change is a benefit, but (laughs) more broadly, do you think there are any benefits to this framework? Yeah, I do. And I think your question really hits at one of the things that I was initially really interested in this project, which is I was to come to you and say, there are three for-profit companies that are making rules for the American economy. You'd be really nervous, right? But then if I was to tell you, hey, these asset managers are addressing climate change, they're improving board diversity, you'd be excited. And this is sort of the puzzle in all of this, which is You've got this regulatory dynamic that lacks democratic accountability and democratic legitimacy. At the same time, it seems like it's doing some good stuff. So sort of along these lines, to be more concrete about the benefits of the specific regulatory dynamic is, I think, the starting point for a lot of people who see this and like it. They're not thinking, oh, man, asset managers should run the world. They're thinking wow, the government is really just so dysfunctional and it does not appear to change. So we are in a second best world at best. (laughs) And in this world of dysfunctional government, we need all hands on deck. And here's an example of some asset managers that are powerful and are going to help us address these problems and everything, every little bit counts. There's also aspects of it beyond that that are actually really cool and exciting. Some things are true of other private regulatory regimes. You know, they can be more flexible. They can be more responsive. They don't have to be mired in litigation over how they formulated their rules. Of course, this can be negative as well, but hey, they can move pretty quickly. It's also harder for companies to evade this. You know, if a company wants to evade a costly wage and safety regulation in the United States. They can incorporate elsewhere. They can move their factories overseas. They can do all of these things. Here, you can't change your shareholders unless you go private, which is much more burdensome and difficult. So if we think their rules are good, hey, the people are going to be, or corporations are going to be bound by them. It's going to be harder for them to be evaded. And they're also international in scope. BlackRock has investments in over a hundred different markets. So if they have a rule that says, let's limit emissions to this degree, to this point, that's going to cross borders. That's going to affect companies in other countries as well. And so to the extent that some of these problems like climate change require international coordination, that's very difficult to come by, an asset manager rule kind of sidesteps that. So those are some of the things that I think are cool and possibly beneficial about this regulatory dynamic. Yeah, that does sound cool. So taking a little bit of a step back or out broadly. I know you developed a theoretical framework for evaluating this dynamic in your article. Can you explain a little bit about what you come up with? Yeah, sure. So this kind of gets back to something I mentioned in our conversation, which was, why are they doing this? You know, why do you have these for-profit asset managers stepping out and coming up with rules on climate change, on board diversity? Well, they're, again, for-profit companies, they're doing this because it's making them money. So this is my theory. The easiest way for them to profit is to increase the amount of assets they manage. So there are a bunch of different ways they could do this. For example, they could do this by 
ensuring that the companies in the portfolio have the highest possible valuation. They're run really well because that's going to increase the value of their assets that they manage. It's going to lead to more take-home fees for them. But this is very difficult to do, right? You know, if you have a giant portfolio and you're trying to figure out how to use governance rights in a way that creates value, that's not such an easy path forward. The easiest way to do this is to keep your clients really happy, to cozy up to clients that you already have, to seek out nice relationships with clients in the world. And so this is sort of what I think is motivating this regulatory activity. This is a way to keep clients happy. And so who are these clients? So if we look at BlackRock, which is the only public company of each of these asset managers, so we only one where you can really get a detailed breakdown on this, the vast majority, 66% is coming from corporations, public pensions, and governments. Another 16% is coming from corporations in the form of sub-advisory relationships. And then we get another 11% from individuals. So my theory is basically, well, hey, when BlackRock is coming up with a regulatory policy, they're attempting to cater to, and at the very least, not alienate this group of clients. That's interesting. You also differentiate in your paper, your theory from another theory that's about millennial investing, right? That kind of sounds similar in a way. Can you talk about how that was different than your theory? Yes, exactly. Another leading theory to explain, you know, why the heck are these asset managers involved in these ESG initiatives at all? Why do they care about increasing board diversity, et cetera? Another leading theory is this is all being done to cater to millennial investors. So millennials have, well, they will have a lot of money according to this theory. Hopefully. (laughs) If all goes well. And they are much more motivated than their predecessors to have investments that match their political values or, you know, their individual values. As a result, this is sort of a marketing technique, so this theory goes, that BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard say, look, we care about board diversity. This is a way of getting millennials to walk in the door. And I think this is partially right. I think millennial investors are part of the story. But I think it's just incomplete. So in that breakdown that we were just talking about, only 11% of asset center management come from individuals, these millennials. It was actually an even smaller percentage of that 11% is coming from millennials. So sure, yes, asset managers are thinking about individuals. They're thinking about millennials, but they're thinking a lot more (laughs) about the institutions that are investing with them. And so I think at the end of the day, We have to understand why institutions like corporations, public pensions, governments, why they would want these rules. And again, I think this is a really important distinction because if we think this is all being done to cater to millennials, we may think, oh, this is going to be really far reaching. You know, millennials are like, they're the next generation. They want really good stuff for the world. And so this is a great dynamic that's going to lead to sweeping change. If we think this is about keeping corporations (laughs) happy, We might not think, oh, wow, these rules are going to be really far-reaching. And ultimately, if you look at these rules, they're pretty tepid. In the board diversity example, which we didn't really talk about, the early period of this was like, let's get one or two women on a board. It wasn't like, let's Mm -hmm. have the board be as diverse as the workforce, which would suggest parity, gender parity. These rules are not huge leaps forward they're pretty tepid. They're pretty limited. And again, this makes more sense when we understand this not to necessarily be the result of pushing from millennial investors, but from 
influence of all of these different clients. I see. So do you think the government could have a role to play in managing this dynamic? And maybe not in this particular case because the rules are tepid, but if they started trying to make broader sweeping changes, do you think the government would try to get involved? And if so, how? Yeah, I think, yes, you're absolutely right to think that we haven't talked much about a different constraint on what they're doing, which is the risk of government oversight and backlash. So if they are perceived as doing really radical things, that might cause the government to crack down on what they're doing. And so this is, I think, another constraint that limits how radical, how far-reaching this will go. At the same time, I do think even in the period that we're in now, there's more that the government could do to maybe establish some oversight of this, better information. At the very least, I think a really nice feature of the public regulatory process is that there's this opportunity for notice and comment. You know, agencies have Mm -hmm. to say a lot about when they create a rule or when they change a rule. And so that gives a lot of information to the public. Like, why is this rule being created? Is this a good rule? Is this a bad rule? So I don't know. I wouldn't go as far to recommend notice and comment for big rules. But some additional information to how these rules are being made and why, and then some oversight from an elected official, I think that is sort of the direction that might make sense even now. Another implication that you talk about in your paper is about financial intermediary agency costs. Can you explain a little bit about what that means as well as what your findings were? Yes. Okay. So imagine I have $100. I want to go invest somewhere. I pick an index fund managed by BlackRock. This is sort of the classic understanding of you've got me, the beneficial owner, investor. It's my investment. It's my hard-earned dollars that I'm putting to work. And I'm investing it in, let's say, a mutual fund that invests in 10 different companies. And BlackRock is intermediating that. So this is, again, sort of this classic picture I call the single intermediation. You've got BlackRock standing in the middle of the portfolio companies and me, the investor. And so there's an agency problem here because I may want BlackRock to do all sorts of things and BlackRock may do them or they may not. But I may not be able to tell. Maybe it's really important to me that my governance rights be exercised in a way that we would call green. You know, I want votes in favor of green shareholder proposals or against directors that are not making enough progress on reducing emissions. Maybe BlackRock's doing that. Maybe BlackRock isn't. And if BlackRock isn't, that's an agency cost. So there's a big literature that exists studying that sort of single intermediation, saying, is the intermediary acting in the interest of the beneficial owners when they're exercising governance rights? But in this example that we just discussed of BlackRock, well, 66%, really almost 80% of their AUM is coming from other institutions. So really what intermediation looks like in the modern world is I work for Apple. I contribute to 401k. Apple goes out and says, okay, we don't really know how to invest this money. We're going to go call up State Street and put Professor Lund's 401k money in an index fund. And so now there's not just one intermediary standing in between me and my portfolio companies. There's Apple and there's State Street. And so State Street is not acting. Maybe they're thinking about my interests and my values, but they're definitely thinking a lot about Apple and the people who run the 401k program at Apple and what they want. 
And so that's the dynamic that I think is underexplored. To the extent that these clients of these big institutions are mostly in other institutions, what does that mean for this agency cost picture? What incentives does that create? How does that affect beneficial owners and the ultimate picture? Do we think that this double intermediation, this double layer of intermediaries is leading to good outcomes from the perspective of the beneficial owner? I see. So what do you think? Do you think this is all a good development or, you know, how would you want to see it changed? Well, this is a really great question. And I think it's, we're in an early period of understanding this. I think understanding, my problem has really been understanding why this is happening and how complex it is. Again, it's not just an individual telling BlackRock to make boards more diverse. There's all of these other dynamics at work. And so I think beyond that, I think this is important for corporate governance literature generally. You know, we need to keep this sort of reality of double intermediation in mind and understand it. I also think in terms of this interplay between private and public regulation, it's important to understand why we're getting these rules and the shape that they're taking. It's also important to understand how we could possibly harness this to work in a complementary fashion with government regulation. So these are just a few implications, takeaways, big picture, Mm -hmm. open questions, I guess you could say, of things that are remain to be explored and understood. In your paper, you also talk about some difficult normative questions about all these developments. So can you explain which ones you think are worth exploring more or what your initial thoughts are about those? Yeah. So one looming normative issue, it goes to, do we like these rules? Do we think these are good rules? Do we think these are bad rules? And I think, again, you were hitting on this in one of your earlier questions is it goes to the question of what we should do about this regulatory dynamic. Do we think these rules are doing good? Do we think that they are not forestalling related government regulation that would be helpful? And so, again, understanding this dynamic and how it works is important for understanding the content of the rules and whether or not we like it. I think there's this deeper issue here also, which is that we've had this evolution in corporate law and corporate governance, which is to equate shareholders as owners, to really give shareholders a lot of rights and ability to influence companies and how they're operated. And this is extending now to, well, companies should be operated consistent with shareholder values. So again, if I am concerned about emissions and climate change and the impact on the environment in my community, I should be able to use my governance rights, my share rights as a shareholder to get companies to change, to be consistent with that value. So that's one development that we've seen in corporate law and governance. But now we also have this development where we have these three private investment companies holding all these rights, right? They're hugely powerful players. And they are now kind of picking the agenda And I don't want to be too dramatic about this because I think at the end of the day, what they have done has not been too radical, but they're coming up with regulatory policies on certain important issues. And they're doing this without electoral accountability. So we have these two trend lines kind of going, and this is sort of the crossroads that we're at, which is, do we think this is a good development? Do we think that these the expansion and rights and powers of shareholders plus the growth of these large asset managers is leading to too much power in their hands. By the way, this is a problem that they are also aware of. And I think in recent months 
have taken steps to sort of walk back their influence and power, given that I think that they're realizing this is just a political hot potato. You know, each of the big three is Mm -hmm. considering ways to pass through voting rights to ultimate investors. Again, just because they recognize that this is a difficult position to be in. When you have all of this power and you're exercising it, it sort of doesn't matter which way. Someone's not going to like it and they're going to want to change the situation. And there's been a long arc of this in American economic history of just fear of power generally. So this is maybe a regulatory dynamic that won't last for very long. But for now, I think as long as it continues, and if it continues to grow as many predicted, I think the time is ripe to sort of start thinking through these questions. I see. Has there ever been a time where like BlackRock and the State Street have conflicting policies? What could happen if that occurs? Yeah, this is a really interesting question to me because you're right that these are each different distinct asset managers and they're each very, very different from each other. BlackRock's a public company. Fidelity, which we haven't spoken about very much, but is another important large asset manager, is family owned. Vanguard has a very interesting structure where it's basically owned by its customers. So, you know, to the extent we think governance matters, the very different governance of each of these institutions should matter as well. And you would think we'd see they've got different owners, they've got different structures, they've got different clients. So wouldn't we see different policies? And this, the big puzzle to me early on was why are they doing the exact same thing? And so thinking this through has led me to believe, again, no asset manager wants to act unless it's basically a policy that will not alienate anybody. Okay, let's make sure every corporate board has one woman director. In 2022, is that controversial with anybody? No. And so they basically wait to find these policies that has broad acceptance among the diverse set of clients. And then once one of them moves, the others realize that if they don't take a similar move, they're going to have clients defect. That's like the only way that I can understand why they've basically moved in lockstep despite all the differences between them. So that being said, there there are new asset managers that are not nearly the size of the big three, but there's this one Strive Capital that's very small in comparison in terms of AUM, but they've made it a name for themselves by coming up with anti-woke policies. Mm -hmm. They're trying to compete on this dimension of if you don't like these policies, you can come to us. And it'll be interesting to see how the emergence of players like that will possibly affect the rules that are being issued by the big three. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. Moving forward, are you continuing researching in this space or do you have eyes set toward other types of projects? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the rise of index investing, the growth of these large asset managers is probably one of the most important developments in corporate governance in the past few decades. And so there are a lot of really exciting avenues to follow. And so currently I'm studying the big three and the factors that have led to their growth, trying to get a better sense of why they've gotten so big, trying to better understand their projected influence. I told you that a couple of researchers have said they're going to control the market in the next 10, 20 years. So Jack Bogle, the inventor of the index fund, also predicted that the big three were going to become controlling shareholders of the entire market in the next decade or so. So with a few co-authors, we're trying to better understand, well, what is the influence of these asset managers going to be in the next five, 10 years? I'm also studying 
as I mentioned, there's these new voluntary policies by these asset managers to pass down their votes so that when I go to vote to invest with BlackRock, I actually get to control my votes, which in theory sounds really appealing. In practice, I think will be pretty hard to pull off. So I'm studying that. What will that change in terms of voting outcomes and this sort of equilibrium dynamics in corporate governance? And so that's just a small taste of what's to come. But again, I think this is a really interesting topic and there's a lot more work to be done in these areas. It sounds like it. And thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Lund. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me.